G'day guys, Kerry here from Precision Shooter and uh, today on the line I have the one and the only David Tubb. Uh, if you don't know who David Tubb is and you're somehow involved in shooting or the shooting industry, it's it's maybe time you introduced yourself to the, the internet and did some searching. Um, I have known of and about David ever since I got into it because much like uh, someone I interviewed recently, Ryan Kleckner, you, you really can't do a search for many subjects without either an article or a video or a photo or, or just commentary from David on the subject. Um, he's been doing this for a long, long time. Um, the amount of knowledge this man has is, is phenomenal and I, I consider myself very lucky for him taking the time just before the SHOT Show, which means he'll be busy, to uh, have a chat with me. So uh, hello David and thank you very much. Yes, Kerry. Thank you. You're too kind. <laughs> Oh, well, anyway, yeah, too long <laughs> time you can get in front of a lot of people. That's it. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Yeah. And and like I said, it's um, I appreciate your time, and it's been a been a thing. If I look back, I can't even specifically register where I first heard of what you were up to. It was sort of the case you you've been well established, and you you were, you've just always been there. So if, rather than making you go through your entire history of shooting again, which is, is long and, and involved as well. I mean, I encourage guys who want to learn more just to do a search about you. But instead, if, if sort of here and now, if you were to do your sort of elevator pitch, so if you, you met somebody who, who had never met you, how do you describe now what you actually do? Well, you know, I, I uh, obviously I get to, to live my passion, which is obviously shooting, and uh, I, I'm at the point that I develop new products. I have a couple of new ones a year off of, you know, uh, basically forward thinking or sort of out of the box thinking, or or here's a niche or a, or, or a void that hadn't really been filled. And and so if I come up with two or three new products a year, I, I kill off one of my products every year that I like, like a shooting hat back when I used to shoot competitive high power uh, or a sling. I don't use a sling much anymore. I've, I've moved from that. Um, and so, you know, I've always got something, you know, two or three things in the mix of the fray, so to speak, and uh, or more. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that, oh, I'm decently successful at picking a winner about 25% of the time. <laughs> and, I'm you know, I'm able to, to fund my stuff, you know, from, from my, by myself and uh, so you know there's there's some things that I, I probably get off on tangents or ideas uh, that not the general public is gonna you know it, it's gonna the general public is not ready for it basically sure there there'll be a bit behind the curve uh, and I see that uh, as uh, it's somewhat of a detractor but uh, I dismiss that as you know everything I try to do I try to make it the best product with the most forethought uh, that that we can do, uh, irregardless of the price, basically. And obviously, I'm not spending telling you to go spend twenty thousand bucks on something. But something, if something is twenty five bucks, but you can make it where it's really superlative for thirty five, well, you can darn well bet that I'm going to make it superlative. So just just looking at a, a little bit of your history from the the high power and silhouette, I and I think what I find really interesting is what instead of sort of just having your one particular um, sport or shooting discipline, what you've done is with these new products at the same time, you've also changed your discipline and you've kept up with sort of what was happening in the shooting sports on the whole uh, with competing through the PRS and now obviously in the um, ELR side of things. It always... Oh, right. It, it's just, well, I, I, you know, I think that's that's commendable rather than just being fixed into a particular sport. And, and more so as well as you do extremely well at them. It's not like you're just trying these different things out. You get involved, you bring your systems and knowledge to it, and very quickly you are there in the in the the top side of things. The the ELR and some of the the records that have been sent recently with your um uh, adaptive rifle, for example, come to mind. So you sort of invest yourself and and um yeah, it it, it make waves no matter what you're doing. Um 
I suppose the, one of the the first time I think I focused on, which is going to go back a little bit and something I haven't seen you talk about really, so um, bear with me while I dredge up maybe something you've covered millions of times before, but I think one of the first things that I came across, which was a, a document of yours, which had some comments on getting the most out of a Dylan 550, the progressive, um, and this would have been through the 6.5 guys. I think one of their forum chats, they linked onto this and it was just at the time I was like, oh, okay, this is not something I'd ever really heard of of guys using the 550s or the progressives on the whole to do match accurate ammo. Now, is this something you're still using? Are you still using a 550 for your own reloading? I, I am, uh, absolutely. In fact, I'm loading the, the large cartridges on it now. Mm. 33 and the 37 which which basically in my opinion are, are about the limit or they are the limit because what you got is you got to kind of be uh, you know judicious when you when you put the bullet on the case to seat it you don't have any any extra room in your uh, <clears throat> between the, the the ram and the uh, the tool head basically so you're out of room I yeah, I can imagine with those big cartridges, it's been, and I think what we're going to do, we're going to sort of jump all over a little bit because in some ways you do have so much stuff going on that is so relevant to what is happening in the precision rifle world and the the new your new cartridges are being a great example of it. But I was looking at a uh, build for a client for a Shaytac and you look into not only the the firearm itself but then basically having to change around the majority of the reloading setup because the shaytac requires the the bigger threaded presses and everything so it's one thing i thought with your 33xe 37xe which i'm sure we'll talk more about is the ability to keep on using your within reason your existing reloading equipment and not have to sort of retool for everything well, that's quite right. You know, that, that was one of the main reasons. Well, that was one of the reasons we did that and went down that path was because you can still use your 7.8-5.14 reloading dies in your original mm. reloading press, and you don't have to get a bigger receiver and a bigger, 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 you know. Obviously, you need to have something that's adequate, but you don't have to go spend several thousand more dollars on something that's, that's basically, you know, one cartridge usable, you know, uh, so, so to speak. And... Uh, because you can, you know, for the 550 and a tool head, you can, can be changing calibers in a shell plate. You can change caliber to caliber to caliber. And, of course, you know, over the years, I've done lots of mods to my 550. And one of the better ones was one that John Wooden took and ran with was the the uh, little roll pins that we put in, uh, in the tool head. And then we drilled a hole, basically, in the lock ring. And the lock ring was a pinching lock ring. And so you could go in there and all your dies would float or move around when you ran them. So they'd want to center themselves. And uh, that was one thing that we did. Uh, I typically surface ground the shell plates so that when I tightened the shell plate down, I could actually impede the movement of the, the brass. So I'd have to back it off a little bit so, it would, so you could rotate the shell head and make the cases or make the cases rotate around and fall out or, be, or put one in. And that was largely due to the fact that I did a little bit of work on the primer seeder. You know, any primer seeding you do, it's always easier to do it on the downstroke than the upstroke. And a 550, you're doing it on the upstroke. Mm. And of course, when Bill makes stuff, they make stuff with intolerance ranges. And so what I found is I could not, for, for my own benefit, seat primers in as deep and or as flat and or both uh, using a large, a, a loosely fitting shell plate that let the brass wobble around and a large primer seeder. So when we ground, surface ground the shell plate so we could take the tolerances out of the shell, the casing heads basically, and then I took a small primer seeder, Dylan Prowl's small primer seeder, and, and bored it or opened it up so that it had much tighter tolerances, but it, yet it would still run a large rifle primer then. I moved it from a small to a large. And what I got there is I got much better seating uh, results. And so uh, those, that's a couple of little items to do. And, you know, the thing, if you're really going to load really, really match, good match ammo and stuff, you kind of need to break the progressive up. Depending on how, what you're going to do, you could load your ammo all the way through and then come back and seat your bullets one more time through the Dillon press, uh, and you will find that uh, you get better 
overall consistency by doing that because the, all presses flex, bend, move when you run under load in the resize portion of it. And so if you're resizing a case and seating a bullet in another stage and then you're just seating a bullet in another stage and not resizing a case, those two bullets or those two loaded cartridges are going to have a slightly different overall length simply because you didn't flex the press uh, when you ran it in the resizing side. So that's something to know. That's something to pay attention to. And, of course, a dial, a, a dial caliper can give you all kinds of good results there. Uh, as far as the powder throwing, I have a, you know, I have a, a Zermatic scale that throws the powder overhead, and I use an expander mandrel, and I use, obviously, my, my own dies. These are 660 dies. I load most of that stuff. Uh, that's the main cartridge I shoot. And then the 33XE, and we use an A7 tool steel die that actually small bases the case as well as pushes the shoulder back. And it's an integral neck shoulder bushing and all that in that resized die, not just the bushing. Because if you use just the bushing, let's say like a redding, you're just there's a portion of the of the uh, the neck that never gets actually resized. So there's there's a whole bunch of little uh, <clears throat> variables that need to be accounted for in order to load superlative match ammo. But I will tell you that that once you got it all figured out, then your cyclic rate on new or brass that's already been you know, looped per se is is approaching approaching 300 rounds an hour, and that's pretty good mm. uh, for me. And that's weighing each charge to within a kernel. So that's that's uh, not, that that's moving on, but that's that's getting it. And it uh, you get the results, and you don't have to spend near as much time in front of like a single stage press, which takes forever. So, anyway. Well, I, I think that's the thing. You talk to people and go, "Well, I'm I'm reloading on a progressive," and they're like, "Well, you can't you can't get accurate match ammo out of it." And then I obviously just refer, "Well, I can name David Tubb seems to do pretty right with it." But also, I give him the context as of, "Well, if I'm doing a field shoot, then I potentially want one two hundred rounds for it. I'm not loading up." 10 rounds or 20 rounds or a couple of rounds for my my hunting season I do need to be aware of the the time it's going to take because even though I I do enjoy the process of reloading at a certain point you're kind of like I don't want to spend five six hours just doing the same thing over and over again so if I can kind of get a bit of process optimization but still have the the quality of the ammo coming out then um, that's a win-win for me so like so many things in shooting I think you often need to give people context for them to understand why you're doing things absolutely no no, no question about it you know and of course you know the the powder measuring is typically taken a lot of time in the past mm. but you know that such new stuff out. They've got this. Uh, you got Adam McDonald's Auto Trickler that runs on a Sartorius scale, and you know by the time you keep moving the head around and shifting the positions of the brass and removing one or putting a bullet in one, it's it's just about throwing a charge. It's finished with it. That all you need to do is pick up and dump and dump and into your whatever station on the 550 you're doing, and you've got something that's that's accommodating itself to like my little. Zermatic that's over the top of the press, you know, so the, the, the playing field's been leveled there basically as far as uh, weighing powder uh, accurately for, uh, you know, for, for long-range shooting or for, or for mid-range shooting for that matter, you know. Mm. So. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you're sort of you're covering off all the extra questions I sort of had about the 550. I mean, down here I'm using one of Adam's the Auto Trickler setup with, um, and and now I think is which is quite cool and amazing is you've got a company like Area 419 who are just almost replacing every single bit of his original design with. Um, CNC upgraded parts so it's become this little the auto trickler has become its own little industry which is kind of awesome so just one thing to clarify though you were saying you've you've so you're throwing but you're still weighing each individual charge or you're doing by by weight rather than volumetric that's correct my zermatic that's over the top is a yeah. balanced beam and it, you know, it's aligning. And so when I throw it, it has an auto, it's, it's got its own little automatic powder trickler. Uh, and so it'll, it'll, it's got a couple of, couple of speeds, you know. And when it's done, then I'm looking at a balance beam each time. I'm, I'm not getting a digital scale. I'm getting a balance beam. Now, I've got a very accurate digital scale of Denver Instruments over on the right. And, uh, you know, I can take charges off of it and weigh it on the Denver Instruments. Which incidentally has got a little box around it, so it's kind of 
Mm. It's got its own environment, and it you know it's it's spot on. I I load within a kernel every time uh, using that setup, but I don't have to pick anything up. All I have to do is throw a handle up. It threw the charge, and when I bring the handle down, it threw the supplemental charge, and it will trickle its way up to the finished charge. While I'm messing with everything else, you know, rotation, seating a primer seating a bullet, you know, or, or putting a bullet on to get seated and so on and so forth, and or weighing a finished loaded round. You know, I've got that. I typically do that. I weigh all my brass to within about a half a grain only for weighing loaded ammo in the end and making sure that uh, we're not missing something or something didn't happen. You know, they didn't have a, 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 a problem with powder or a primer knot in or a bullet jacket that they went full of lead, which you will on a – on a blue moon sea, you know, mm-hmm. occasionally. So anyway, so, but no, I, I'm using a, a, a mechanical press, uh, still to throw powder. Yep. So pretty soon I think that I will, you know, I'll, I'll have another setup eventually because I've got, uh, a guy named Paul Poindexter's ingenuity gunworks make these rail systems. And he, he's looked at my little single kernel powder trickler as opposed to like the Adam McDonald trickler that's just rolling them out. Mm. And, uh, it, it's a better, the, the single kernel powder trickler is a better mousetrap. So I think pretty soon you'll see that coming around and tied into, uh, in with the auto trickler, let's say, but kind of like the 419 deal, another, you know, an, another ancillary part that, that you add or you replace or get something and you'll be throwing powder, right to the kernel every time, each time. And it is fast. So it, it's funny. Cause I'm, re- I'm reminded of the question I often hear, uh, hear from guys getting into shooting or more particularly reloading as in, uh, will reloading save me money in the long term. And then I think about all these extra little bits that we're finding that we can add on in this quest for the, the, the perfect load, I, I suppose. Um, right. and places like 419 where it's just another, add-on on top of the add-on it's 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 quite funny so my my answer generally now is no um that's maybe not your primary reason to getting into reloading it's for the the result you get out because you're chasing chasing something well the thing to keep in mind is for like extreme long range shooting if i'm shooting at a 2400 yard target and the target's two feet tall and and let's say my my velocity my bullets are all perfect, my, and my velocity is 3,000 feet a second in order to hit the middle of the target. Well, if my velocity changes a little more than 12 feet a second, high or low, mm. I'm shooting over or under the target that distance. So there's good reason to try to have the most accurate ammo you can at distance, of course, and so, so that you'll obviously be able to perform um, to the level that you're trying to be, you know, try to win a match, basically. So, well, uh, that, now, yards, a lot of people can dump ammo. You know, a lot of people just dump their charges, and they get very, very good groups. I mean, look at the bench race shooters. They're they're throwing ball powder, not a stick powder, hmm. and and you know they do very well at a, at 100 and 200 yards with with a charge. But you know, the the one thing that that I go back to is I had my son work for Federal one year. When he was going to college, he's a mechanical engineer. I always figured that that, that uh, the guys at Federal hired him so so they could pick my brain sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they got me. Yeah, I got a tour of the the plant in uh, in uh, Anoka, Minnesota. Very interesting. Uh, but the uh, the thing that I recall is the Ruger 204 had just come out, and so they would shoot half inch groups with Ruger 204 at 100 yards with their factory ammo. You know. Uh, the other thing they didn't tell you, though, is the, the velocity on the factory ammo varied 150 feet a second. But they still shot half-inch groups. So Now, that would not be the case at three or 400 yards. Those would be, you know, one-foot-tall groups, basically. So yeah. That shows you that uh, up close, a lot of stuff doesn't matter as much as everybody thinks it does. But when you when you cross that you cross that five or six hundred yard threshold, it makes a difference. 
Well, I think I think that's exactly it, and it's something I've I've had a look in recently, and I was sort of inspired with some of the work that um, Carl was doing on Precision Rifle Blog, where he was using the applied ballistics uh, WES program to sort of just narrow down on on what things were going to matter the most and at, at what distances, um, because exactly like you were saying, when the the velocity the SD and ES gets up higher at distance, that's really what's coming into play, and and it ties into something else that I've seen, and I'm, I'm not sure, were you the first person doing this, which was strapping that magneto speed onto the side of the rifle as a rail to to decouple it from the barrel, but to record your velocity on a per-shot basis? Sure. Yep. You know, in fact, we're at the SHOT Show, we're going to introduce this, a, a magneto speed mount that'll fit a pick rail. Yep. Uh, obviously, it depends how long your barrel is and how long your pick rail is, but sure. this thing's out in front and uh, it's got a couple of clamps and it's got another little uh, piece that bolts under kind of let's say at six o'clock just in front of your magwell or on your forend tube on another pick rail section or if you've got a complete pick rail forend and now you can mount your magneto speed uh, completely autonomous to the barrel and you can put your little recording uh, module uh, the digital readout on on your rifle and so when you pick it up and move from target to target to target, uh, it's going to work very well. And, you know, magneto speed, the, the one thing that, the, that's, that's kind of funny is magneto speed says, oh, you need to get, your, uh, you need to get the, the unit as close as you can, let's say a quarter to three-eighths of an inch away from the bore. Mm. Well, you know, when you, when you hook that to the barrel with straps, uh, eventually if you shoot it enough, you're going to have – you you possibly could have an issue with that, and uh, you have to buy another, you know, forward mount. The the the, the uh, I'm trying I'm trying to remember what to call it, but anyway. But with my old setup, you're about uh, you you're about six tenths of an inch, or slightly more away from the bore, and by adjusting the sensitivity to say five or six or seven, you're able to pick up every shot uh, that mm. you shoot. It's a twenty two. Or a 375, it'll pick it up, and so consequently, you're you're not you don't have to be it nearly as critical. Obviously, you've got to align it so that it's lined up with the bore and it's parallel to the barrel, let's say, but uh, the, you don't have to get it as close. And so you're you're able then to pick it up, move it target to target, like if you're going to shoot 200 yards or 600 yards or 1200, and and you've got a you know they're in a wide range as opposed to let's say a uh, a lab radar, which you, you got to be pointing at the target in order to pick something up. You know? So it's a very handy, and it's very easy to, to read, and you can manipulate it with your right hand while you're in position, and read it while you're in position. And of course, your feedback—you know—that's what you're all after. You're after, you're after, you know, a zero, you know, SD basically on your gun, on your, on your, what, what you know, one of the SDs that you're looking for is the is the ammo SD for sure. The um, it's great because you again you just you're preempting my questions. I was just asking about to ask exactly about that about the lab radar, but then I realised yes, as soon as you move, the lab radar is not going to be aligned, and that can be a little finicky that it needs to be pointing at the target you're shooting at at the time. So yeah, the the magneto speed on your mount then just makes perfect sense for the field style shooting where we're changing targets and changing essentially direction of fire. So. I, I- long before you see a a little chronograph set up in a muzzle brake, you know mm. uh, and and of course you may it may be a wireless or you may connect a wire to it you know but uh it would not be that difficult to do so anyway not one of my projects but <laughs> I, I, <laughs> we seem we do seem to be sort of on that um, cusp though of a lot more electronics or electric um, I say gadgets but meaning meaning tooling and equipment being involved uh, or uh, integrated into equipment I mean the the obvious example being the scopes now that are coming with the the electro optics for lack of a better term um, being put into them in the form of range finding or ballistic solutions so incorporating some um, measurement equipment into things like muzzle brakes, yeah, it does does seem to be a way that that um, we can keep progressing and, and refining what we're doing. I suppose. Mm-hmm. No, it's no. You know, if it's electronic, it's going to break somewhere. Yes. Someday. Yeah. 
Well, I, I say to people, it's anything that's connected via Bluetooth is great. And yes, it's it's more um, convenient sometimes, but we've all had the case where our Bluetooth headset or something or the, the, the car stereo has disconnected randomly from Bluetooth. So it does happen. Um, and at least on a, on a on a mound or something, I mean, the worst that's going to happen is it's going to ruin your um, string or your competition, which depending on what you've invested in, it could be quite a, quite a a big issue um but yeah <laughs> uh, uh, digital is not not always perfect uh, you know i i'm a firm believer you know i have a i have some i have several patents on the scope reticle called a dynamic targeting reticle <laughs> and and yes it's a bc range velocity range reticle but basically if you're in the field and you know your approximate elevation and your approximate temperature, and obviously you need to know what density altitude is, which is not very hard to teach somebody, then you have enough information, if, as long as you know the distance to the target, to, to make an accurate shot uh, without any other ancillary or electronic device. Mm. And uh, I'm still run down that road at this point. Uh, now, obviously when I shoot ELR stuff, I'm using this same reticle, but I'm using, I have my own ballistics program, uh, and I'm using it to calculate, you know, my effective hole point uh, based on, you know, the atmospherics, and obviously, uh, you know, you got you got all your your uh, your data in there that you need, uh, supersonic and and transonic and subsonic. So anyway, just uh, there are certain well, things that that you want to go to, and certain things you don't. And I'm I'm not a I mean, yeah, if you've got enough time to shoot with an electronic stuff, it's great. But if you got to shoot and shoot and change distance and shoot something else in a, in a short period of time, uh, you know, I, I think that my little system's a better mousetrap. So. Well, I think with your DTR reticle as well as a as – a um, you, you, I'm sure, have a term for it, but I, I look at it as a functional reticle or a field solution reticle where it gives you that information where you're not having to refer to anything external. Um, there was the trend to go with these reticles getting busier and busier and the, and the Christmas tree style reticles, but I, I sort of look at other, there's other options coming out there now that are sort of leaning towards what you have been doing for a while, giving you these this quick information so you can make a decision while still looking through the scope. Um, sure. And I should also say, I, I jumped onto the demo on your site, which we'll, we'll put a pile of links up with this interview, but the, the demo that you have for that reticle on the site, I mean, just within a couple of minutes, and, and I will go back and read that manual a little bit, I've had a, a quick look through it, but just within a couple of minutes, you're, you're getting the general gist of what's going on. But I'd encourage people for not only to understand your reticle, but also it's just a great example of even being able to show someone how spotting a miss in your own reticle and adjusting um, can be so quick. It's just a great great demo for that as well, so... Correct. It, uh, you know, the uh, the other thing to think about is is everybody else's reticle on the planet is is square, mm. right angles to everything, right angles or whether on level planes and so on, and and that's really not the true bullet path flight. Uh, you know, when that bullet leaves the barrel, it's turning at several hundred thousand RPMs a minute, and if it's a right hand twist. It wants to move to the right. It's truly, if you look at its flight path, it's a parabolic curve. It goes all the way down if you shoot it out far enough. And then additionally, you know, you've got well, the other factors you have are you've got wind. And wind moves you. Obviously, we agree. We all move them. Wind moves to the left or the right, you know, depending on which way direction it's from. But it also has a vertical component. It will move you up and down. And most well, all these all these scopes that have got square reticles aren't aren't taking that into account at all. Mm. Uh, and you know, of course, they've got like you said, we've got mill based stuff, mill dots, and we've got MOA based stuff. And so, what what I see is people they measure something, let's say, 500 yards, and then they convert it to a mill hold or an MOA hold. And in my little setup, you have a 500 yard shot. You convert it into some yardage hold. It might be. 
a 490-yard hold, or it might be a 510-yard hold. But it's going. You're gonna you're gonna call something in yards. You're gonna hold it in yards. And the same thing. Let's say they do the same thing with the wind. They they make a wind call and they convert it to mills or MOA. Well, we make a wind call and we convert it into a vectored angle wind call. So it was a five mile an hour wind that was at two o'clock. It's worth you know two and a half miles an hour. So we're going to convert a five mile an hour wind to a two and a half mile an hour wind hold. And so you're working in the same numbers. It it just just makes lots of sense. Mm. So. So when when you're talking about the the vertical aspect of the the bullet climbing or jumping, are you referring to the the common terms of well the 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 right the trending right being spin drift and the vertical being aerodynamic jump? Right, aerodynamic jump, but I call it crosswind jump because okay. why does it? Because you got a or you got a crosswind effect in it, and you know the the one I, I teach some classes occasionally. And I have a range that I call the crosswind jump range. And it's at 500 yards. The targets are arranged in 30-degree angles, like a clock face, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And, so, and the targets are 2 feet tall. They're black, half black, half white, top and bottom. And so if you came to shoot that range, and, oh, and, and, and if we're talking about uh, the... The other atmospherics, obviously, we'd have a little spin drift in there, but let's just assume that we're not going to worry about the lateral movement. Let's assume it's truly a lateral movement. And we're going to shoot east and west in this test as well as either north or south, so we're going to have a Coriolis effect. Well, the Coriolis effect at 500 yards is about the size of your little fingernail, so it's a negligible factor at 500 yards. So what we'll do is we put you down and let you shoot with the wind at your back, and let's say the wind's blowing 12 miles an hour, in which we want you to shoot at this target at 500 yards away, and you shoot two or three shots, and you get where you shoot a nice little, you know, two or three-inch group down there that's that's in the middle of the target, right where the black and the white line or sides meet, okay? And then I have you pick up and walk about five or ten steps, and I you lay you down, and, and of course, the wind's out of the south, and, and you were shooting north, and let's say you played, you had no wind on your rifle, or you 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 centered it so that there was a, basically you assumed there was no wind. Yeah. <clears throat> then then I move you to the right, so you have a you're shooting east, and you're not going to touch your sights. You're going to leave everything alone or your scope. And I want you to shoot another three shot group aiming at the black white line where the and what you'll find is you're going to print two and a half or three inches high as well as get drifted to the left by the 12 mile, let's say the 12 mile hour crosswind, then I'll pick you up and move you and let you shoot dead west uh, at the same target, but now you have a full value left wind and you see you're going to shoot this three shot group, but it's going to be two and a half or three inches low. So what you're going to find out is when you put those two together that you've got a vertical component change of at least five inches of vertical between the one shot to the east or the shots to the east and the shots to the west. And, you know, that's uh, that's eye-opening, uh, depending on what target size you're shooting at. Yeah. You're shooting over something you call the wind perfect, but I shot over or under. Well, imagine what. There's a reason for that. And you get, you know, when you go further out, like if you look in the scope reticle on a DTR, and let's say at 8, that's the number 8 line. So that would compass, you know, correspond, let's say, an 800-yard shot. And so the the 8's in the middle, and the bottom of the 8's blacked in, so that's a zero, no wind hold, based on your precession and no, you know, in good conditions. But when you work your way out to the 20-mile-an-hour dot, the dots are incremental in 5, 10, 15, and 20, and so on. There's another number 8 at 20, so it, so it gives you uh, proximity, you know, on which line you're using. But the 8 over on the right, uh, the... Uh, the, the dot is in the bottom of the eight, kind of like it was in the center where there was no wind. But if you look over on the on the left side, the dot is in the top of the eight. And you go, well, there's certainly a different vertical component difference in there. Of course, that's that's a 20-mile-an-hour wind shift one way to the other. Mm. But it's also a 16-inch vertical impact shift. That's what the 308 reticle I'm talking about. Yep. So you're done shooting 16 inches of vertical elevation difference between a 20 mile an hour right hand wind and a 20 mile an hour left hand wind so 
that's a, that's a big deal when it's that windy. Of course, you're typically not going to be shooting when it's 20, but you're sure going to be shooting when it's 10 or 15 sometimes. Anyway. But what I think all of this is, is awesome as well, and I've, I've had conversations particularly, like I was saying earlier, because I'm based up in um, Auckland in New Zealand, we have a lot of people, urban, we'll call them urbanites, metro, whatever you want to call them, who have never had any exposure to firearms or guns. But you start having a conversation about something like this and they very quickly realize what we're doing is just a really nice physical instant um, representation and and problem solving of maths and physics. And you take the whole um, firearm side of it out and you see guys, especially if they've got an engineering or a design background, getting excited because they can just see there's this whole other world developing that we're also getting to then make these decisions, make these adjustments, um, press a trigger, get a response and correct instantly. And I've, funnily enough, it's, it's a total aside, but I've found with quite a few people having conversations where they've had no exposure to firearms or shooting or long range, while they might originally be like, why would you do this? When you start explaining this extra thought and things we're having to account to, especially as you get out further, they start getting more and more interested and intrigued by it. And I think it's a it's a, a great thing as well. Sure, no doubt about it. So, you know, it makes it back to the, when we talk about, you know, this big moves and, and close ranges and stuff. Yeah. You know, in, in McCoy's book, uh, which had a lot, it's got a, it's got a, it, it's got a lot of technical expertise in it. They, the uh, they did this uh, this uh, aeronautical jump test, and they shot a 50 caliber out of the port side of a, one airplane, and they shot it at a target that the other airplane was dragging, and it was uh, about 100 yards away, or yeah, it was 400, 125 yards away, 400 feet, I think, whatever it was, and of course, no, I'm I'm sorry, it was 100 yards away, and they were going 400 knots. That's what it was, and. Uh, Everybody goes, well, so how much is a 50 cal drop in 100 yards? And people go, oh, three inches or something, you know, but obviously would. Well, the vertical impact shift with the crosswind or the aeronautical jump involved was just another three feet <laughs> at 100 yards. <laughs> so imagine shooting out of an airplane at another target, yeah. you know, uh, that's out there a thousand yards away, and you're going 400 knots, and it's going 400 knots, you know. And and you're going to be shooting that much high and low, and you think you're shooting at the plane, you know? Somebody somebody told me one time that shooting an airplane down, like in World War II style, let's say, uh, was equivalent to knocking a butterfly out of the air with your garden hose, <laughs> squirting at it. <laughs> That's about right. You're not going to get it done very often. Yeah. Anyway, a little bit of humor. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, to to go in a slightly different direction, then you just you mentioned the the fifty cal, and I suppose one thing I've noticed with your um, cartridge design. So, you've how how long has the six XC been around? You know, I think we did that in oh oh three or oh okay. four, and then uh, Norma picked it up in oh five or six and ran put made a CIP cartridge, yep. which is the equivalent of Sammy. And so it's been it's been there, you know, for a while. Yeah. So, so I, I'm um, uh, is a project coming up, looking at uh, rebarreling a rifle, basically as a six mil. And I was looking at different options, and then I'd always sort of had in the back of my head as a six XE. And and one thing I suppose I'd, I'd sort of like to say what's been awesome is that with the amount of information, not just it's not like you've just done a cartridge design and put it out there and go, hey, here's my design. Now you can buy parts and pieces and stuff for it the amount of information that you personally have put out to make sure that people are successful with this cartridge um, I'm thinking of that the paper you have that pretty much has the recipe for getting the most out of 6xc from the reamer through to the 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 brass choices and everything there's just a template there and it, one thing I've noticed with you you've always you're always very forthcoming with the information I'm sure you've got stuff that you're still working through and that, that you keep under wraps but so much of what you do is you're just explaining not only the what of the products that you're doing, but the why and the thinking behind it. It's awesome. But um, that's true. Yeah. But what I suppose what I wanted to talk about, and I have a specific question somebody wanted me to ask you about this, um, was 
referring back to the 50 is this concept that I think you're you seem to be working with a bit is the bigger bigger isn't better notion that um, with the 50s and the shay tax because my understanding is originally you you sort of played with the the shay tax or the 338s that you'd sort of expanded out to take the 375s and and eventually you decided that there was a better like you would say a better mousetrap a better way to do it and that's the result now is the 33 and the 37 XC um so that sure. uh, I mean just to explain a little bit why when especially for people getting into the ELR the the Shay tax or there's a lot of guys down here everyone wants a 50 because it's just the biggest baddest thing but when it comes maybe to accuracy and performance why you're sort of looking at it approaching it slightly differently well very differently actually Right. Well, I wonder where it was, it was economical for Joe, you know, for anybody who was using it, Joe, Joe Blow, I guess. And that's why we kept it with the Lapua head diameter. Uh, I, I shot a, obviously I shot lots of 338 Lapuas and 338 Normas back and forth. And I did a, an actually improved uh, 338. And uh, I, I, it was okay, but didn't see a, a great big change in it. Uh, then I necked it up. And to a to a thirty seven or three seven five, and I saw some some flaws in that when you were trying to everybody's trying to always blow the shoulders out or or make the shoulders sharper, blow the sidewalls out, and you know and and your brass life was was quite inadequate uh, with that little setup for me, and so I ended up setting the headspace back on it. Ended up trying not to stretch the brass as much longitudinally when I was fire forming. And uh, and got some good results, but you know the 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 shy tacks were still shooting 100 feet a second faster. So then the next one I did is I did a a shy tack with a rebated rim, which was a Lapua head, and uh, I we shot those. We had some okay luck with that, but figured out right away that going from say 110 grains of powder to 150 grains of powder, shooting the same bullet, uh, that the barrel life was subsequently definitely shorter. Uh, and uh, I think the shot that case when it was a 408 was probably just about right. Mm. And, so, and so consequently, you know, I came back to a Lapua head because that lets a lot of people still play the game with the reloading components and so on. And, uh, and doing it in 33, and it's very simple to neck at the 37. Uh, it's going to be easy to neck at the 35. Here, there's a 35 XC coming mm-hmm. pretty quick, the guy. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm using an intermediate powder level now. If uh, let's just say that a uh, that a Lapua case held 115 grains of water, and a and a Shytac case held 160 grains of water. Well, my little case uh, will hold about 140 grains of water. So it's kind of in the middle. Mm. And uh, so I, I'm able, and I'm and I'm a big believer. Of, you know, everybody wants to use slow burning powder, and, and obviously we are using slow burning powder. But, but I, I would much rather have a cartridge that I was shooting, say H1000 through, than I would, uh, you know, so like Reloader 20 and 29, or Reloader 50, or or some Vitavroy 20 and 29. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, uh, I think I'm I'm, I'm going to have a little bit better luck with the the uh, H1000, and so consequently. When I'm going to, and a 37, obviously, the bigger the bore diameter, the longer the barrel life, without a question. And uh, so, again, let's have both the best of both worlds. Of course, you know, we set the, we shot a record not long ago at 2,200, three cold bore shots. And we were using a 33XC with a new flatline Warner bullet that weighs 285 grains, and you can shoot at 3,200 feet a second. It has got a drag function on it, that bullet does, that's, that's akin to the 375 bullet. So... Mm-hmm kind of made me rethink that a little bit uh is that what you need to be doing but if you're going to shoot way way out you tell you what you're going to miss more than you hit <laughs> i do and uh you know when you miss and it hits the dirt you you see more impacts with uh you know 100 grains more bullet weight going down <laughs> range something to be said for that um, yep. and i think i think that they're going to come i think you're going to see some lead core bullets in the uh, 33s and the 37s and maybe in the 408s one of these days. And, well, I tell you, there's a complete difference. When you shoot a target at, you know, at, at 2,500 yards and it and it puts a, a dime-sized mark on it, that was your 375 bullet. 
that was a you know it was a lead turn. I mean a solid bullet wouldn't no lead involved in it. And that's very hard to see. But if you mm-hmm. shot it with a lead bullet, it's going to look like you hit it with a softball. You know, and you could much easier see that. And so I'm not so sure that that for the feedback aspect that uh, lead core bullets aren't you know far and away better. Hmm. Anyway. No, but that. that's don't see that at this point. So, no, and it's it's interesting again, just watching sort of trends and developments, even with say the the, the PRS or the NRL that that practical style shooting where people went smaller and smaller in their calibers for recoil and and staying on target. But then we had the issue of seeing those impacts. So then we have things like the magneto speed, the T one thousand, and the various hit indicators. And there just seems to be this constant swinging back and forth where we'll go down one path and go, well, that's cool, we've gained some stuff here, but we've lost some stuff here and come back and go back and forth. Um, well, you know, the one thing I've seen, I've shot a few PRS matches, not a great deal. I mean, I'm, I'm a 60-odd-year-old man, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to be running 100-yard dashes and, you know, flying through the air, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, so if you come out to Texas and Oklahoma, most of the most of the shooting is uh, is prone, and uh, the targets are further, and the wind blows. So there's a big difference between that and the PRS that I'm seeing evolve, which is, you know, mid-range targets. Let's say a let's say a 1,100 yards are in, or 800 yards are in for the most part, and people are, you know, they're 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 trying to come up with ways in order to hit the target where they're not using the human skeletal structure and there's no there's no hole they're trying to do it where it's it's kind of like field of interest where they're trying to figure out set their rifle on something shoot a lightweight bullet let's say that doesn't disturb the rifle much and be able to spot their impacts mm. and there's nothing wrong with that but that's uh you know that's not teaching teaching you basically fundamental marksmanship skills not that you're not a good shot when you do that but you know if, if if we if we had limited that little thing to a bipod and one bag, uh, and that's what you get, uh, you know, the, I I think that's probably the best way to treat your marksman skill, you know, for sure. Or no bipod, you know, years ago nobody had a bipod. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, when I shoot across the course, I'm shooting with a shooting coat, of course, and a sling, but it's a bone supported position. You know, by difference than uh, than what most people are doing today. Well, it was one thing I noticed with your video with uh, Chase Shroud and the um, Tub Adaptive um, that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was just looking at, at the way you were shooting. You were shooting in what I, I suppose I, I would call the more traditional method where you weren't necessarily square behind the rifle but with bipod and rear bag. Is that... Um, and, and the other thing, which is what we'll probably talk about a little bit more as well, is with your uh, adaptive target rifle, is that setup seems to be again bucking the trend of going for heavier and heavier rifles. And have you just found that 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 method is is working better for you? Is there reasoning behind you doing that way? Is it just something that's how you've always shot, so that's how you um, uh, continue to do so, or? It is. I think for the most part, you know, you look at a good prone shooter; they got one leg pulled up. Yeah, uh, and 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 in some of my classes, I I give the little spiel. I go, okay, you're laying down here. Try try to pick your gun up with your when you got both your legs splayed out. You know, one the toe to the east, the toe to the west. You know, you're directly behind the gun, uh, and and you're shooting it. And obviously, you can you can develop a position that way. But let's say that you're going to move that position. Well, you it's very hard to move your rifle. Any degree of arc to the right or the left, if it's a decently heavy rifle, let's say, let's say it weighs 12, 15 pounds, you know, uh, and and move it over there. Whereas where I am, my little position, which has got one leg pulled up, the right leg if I'm a right-handed shooter, okay, uh, it's very easy for me to move the rifle. And why is that? Because I've got a pivot point on my knee. And what what's the first thing I'm going to do when I get ready, when I'm in that splayed position, when I get ready to get up? I'm going to pull a knee up. Mm-hmm. Okay? The other thing is, is when you pull that knee up or, or the leg up, uh, it, it frees up your diaphragm. So you can lay there and lay there, and uh, it, you can breathe uh, and, uh, a little easier, let's say. So I don't know. There's There's advantages to both both ways but that's typically the way that i'm doing it 
and uh, I, you know, if you notice, I'm I'm directly behind the rifle, but I'm but I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to to have a very good bone supported position uh, to help absorb the recoil. Mm-hmm. So then on, on from that as well, and it's something I think it might have been the interview you did with uh, Frank from Sniper's Hide regarding some of the ELR shooting, and you were talking about your desire to use a tub adaptive rifle, and and a part of it being that while you enjoyed this, uh, stre- seeing how far you could stretch it out, you still wanted to have a rifle that was um, in some ways still practical, and that was sort of, you're talking about the uh, the less weight in the system and the, um, the the ability to then basically switch the barrel out and go hunting with exactly the same rifle, which is just a, it's a phenomenal concept. Have you found any disadvantages of not having that sheer amount of weight in there, or is there technology, or is the rifle itself able to help out with just having this massive mass of a rifle? When, when I'm let's say I'm shooting a 36 XC, 37 XC with a 360 some odd grain bullet, yeah. shooting at thousand feet a second, obviously the gun does kick, uh, but the gun weighs you know 23 pounds thereabouts. Uh, it's not a, it's not excessive. Uh, I'm not trying to shoot a 50 caliber out of it, of course. Uh, and the fact that I'm, you know, akin to one rifle, and if you pick up one tub adaptive tarpa rifle, you pick up another one, they both feel the same. And I can't say the same with uh, if I pick up a Macmillan stocked 50 cal and then a Macmillan stocked, uh, you know, 338, they're going to feel differently to me, uh, per se. Uh, it's just the. It's the way the trigger, where the position is in the trigger, and so on and so forth. There's no, wasn't any machining involved. Well, there was machining involved, but whoever inletted the stock might have inletted it a quarter inch further forward, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of variables there. And so being able to, to, to shoot one gun, be, be, you know, watch the guy who's only got one rifle. So mm-hmm. there's something there. And anybody who's in the field, I want to be able to carry it in the field. You know, I mean, we can turn around and uh, put a lighter barrel on, and we can have a let's say a 33XC without a scope and a bipod that weighs 13 pounds, you know? Uh, now you, you know, and it's, you can shoot it out there. Obviously it's got a muzzle brake on it. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, that that's a, a more usable situation. I mean, if you're going to go a 50 cal or a big gun and you're going to dedicate just to ELR shooting, then there you are, you know? But I, I don't know that, that ELR shooting... I mean, obviously, it's going to, it seems to be growing and so on and so forth. But you know, and you're not you're not the the adaptive target rifle. The fact that you, when you want a new barrel, you just send your barrel extension off. You never send your rifle back. Mm. And I hear all people go, "Well, I just got a new action and a barrel and a stock, and I got to get this gunsmith to put together. Take him six months. Well, you buy a tub adaptive target rifle, and I'll I'll find you a barrel in two weeks that's on your gun. You know." Um, or less, or it shows up before the gun does, you know? Yep. And, uh, or before the adaptive target rifle does, the, you know? And, uh, and, you know, there's, there's, the gunsmith has got to use his expertise when he puts it together. Well, you know, the, I'm, I'm not a, and of course, know that an adaptive target rifle is not a chassis system. Chassis are metal stocks that, that people bolt an action to. Tub adaptive target rifles an integral assembly. The receiver and everything is one solid homogeneous piece, and so consequently, there's no stresses involved with guard screws torquing stuff in. You know, the best bench rest rifles they glue in; they don't have guard screws. And so, you know, that's one reason. That I mean, that there's other reasons that this rifle's good, as you well we've talked about before. But this rifle is a is once it's more accurate because it's designed to be more accurate. Thing you know, out of the equation, you know that that's that offers variables into the into the accuracy that's you know that you're able to get out of a typical firearm. I think what's interesting as well, and I mean, uh, you, you're right in what you say. It's not the it's not the Bolton chassis system, but at the same time, what you have done, and again with the Tub 2000 rifle, is this is just the continuation of is you've almost kind of. I sort of wrote down, you've almost reached the natural conclusion of what people are trying to do with their chassis in regards to the modularity and the adjustments. Um, Well, you've sort of just 
gone out and done it that you can with the buttstock adjustments. I was looking at the um, just some pictures of I think it was three pictures of how you would you like to adjust your buttstock depending whether you're shooting prone standing or anything like that. And it again, it just seems that you're sort of just a little bit ahead of everybody else. And in a year or two, we the the industry may kind of catch up to what you're already been doing. Now, you know, the good one is the Tug 2000 rifle I did with Rockwood Miller. We did that in 98, 99, you know, came out, and, and, and of course, it had some screws on it, but it held the, it held the floor plate on it, or the bag, the, the bag on basically. You know, the, the receiver was designed to be a standalone, so to speak. Uh, and, it, you know, it took a while, but now you've got the, the Ruger Precision Rifle. Well, they obviously studied the Tub 2000 stuff, you know. They do look rather similar in some ways, David, yes. <laughs> the thing I'll tell you is, you know, we did that in 2000. Well, this, the new, the tub, the new tub gun, because everybody slang tub 2000 into tub gun, so we just called the new one a tub gun. But there's 17 years of design improvement involved mm. in the new one. And I'm going to tell you, there's some design improvement, no doubt about it. So, and it's all to, all to yield a better product, you know, where, where it's more useful to the consumer. And the consumer is going to get better results from it. That's uh, that, that's the positive. It's all positive. Let's put that away, all the way around. So, uh, David, I mean, there's so many other things. It's just that there's so many things that you're doing that are uh, unique or just a different approach to, say, what a, a lot of other people were doing. I mean, we've got the nose rings. We've got things like your non-symmetrical bipod. And, and I, like I so, say, I'm aware of your time, so there's there's only so many things I, I can go into and, and we'll have links because there's lots of videos of you talking about these separate things as well in, in depth. But... One thing, uh, I mean, you do seem to be constantly approaching things in a different way and sort of going, well, I see what everyone else is doing, but I think there's a better way of doing it. it, it is there um, a methodology to that? Have you always just found you've, you're just able to see things or approach things in a slightly different way? Or, or basically, how, how do you keep on being what it seems to be so innovative in your product design and what you bring to the market? I guess I, I can, you know, kind of sort of live and breathe it, and uh, I, I'm, I don't have all the best ideas. There's been plenty of, you know, been plenty of people like the, the, uh, the, uh, the duo firing pin springs, the half, you know, one spring wound clockwise, one counterclockwise, you know. I got the, that, one, that one from my partner in, of course, we didn't patent it or anything, we, from my partner in the, in the tub gun, you know, it was his idea. And I go, you know, that's a very good idea. Can I use that? Yeah, you can use it. So obviously it's in the tub gun, but it also, we sell springs like that. And of course, you know, I, you just pay attention as you, as you go down the path here and you go, well, why is that, you know, why is this that way? You know, there's always different things. And, you know, and that lends me into the, to a new product that we're about to introduce, you know, that's, that's that we call we call it tub dust. I was going to call it gold dust to start, uh, and it's, it might sound hokey, but but when you go into the trademark stuff, you got you've got federal and you got alliance, and one of them's got gold dot, or one of them's got gold metal, and I don't want to get in a in a, a trademark dispute with anybody, so I just called it tub dust instead of gold dust. Okay? But basically, what it is, it's a little blend that I've been—I've I've shot it for three or four years now, and I've had some beta testers using it, and uh, we'll introduce it in next week. But it, it's a blend, and what it basically does is it—it it eliminates copper fouling in 22s, sixes, six five, seven, so on and so forth, and it—it—it uh, it, it works so well that my beta testers won't even load their ammo now if they don't have this stuff. It's fun. And uh, <clears throat> and it's and it's very evident because if you've got a muzzle brake on your gun, uh, obviously you're not seeing copper wash in your in your bore. A right? properly broken in barrel, I'm assuming, you know. But you've everybody's seen these uh, copper roofed buildings that have that bluish green tinge or hint to them, you know, when they've been weathered for years. Well, what you see now is you see all this copper uh, that once was being deposited inside your barrel because it, it uh, you know, it was, it was atomized, let's say, when the gun went off and it cooled off when it got to the end of the barrel uh, and, and some of it stuck, you know. 
Well, now it's all ended up in the muzzle brake, and you see this bluish-green look inside the muzzle brake ports. And I'll tell you, it's, I wish I'd have known about this stuff, you know, 30 years ago, because it's phenomenal. And you'll be able to get a little pack. It comes like in a little powder container like your, like your wife carries her nose powder in. But basically you put 10 or 15 grains in with a pound of powder, kind of thoroughly mix it up. Obviously it's a, it's a fine dust, so don't breathe it. You know, but uh, it's not carcinogenic, and and just imagine when your gun doesn't copper foul anymore. It's like wow, it just doesn't. <laughs> anyway, that's coming out. The new product called Tub Dust, and it'll be on the website pretty shortly. So, awesome. Anyway, yeah. I think the the remarkable thing is is you'll have a you'll put a video out and you'll say something that not contravenes but is just out outside the box thinking again and without fail and YouTube is a great place to ignore comments anyway for exactly this but then you'll have several people go well that's just not how it works and then I often think well one it's David Tubbs so the guy has got enough experience that he's not making this stuff up but also like you say you've got beta testers and people who are actually having the results and ultimately um, you know it's the results of what actually happens that counts even if it does maybe you know jar a little bit with what has been the traditional thinking but you talking about the the, the blue green and the muzzle brake it's actually something i noticed a couple of days ago and it's just dawned on me you're you're right the blue green is is the same thing you see i'm ex plumbing background so it's the uh, it's yeah. the copper pretend yeah. good example yeah yeah so well when you beta testers they're waiting on their next batch of this stuff because they you know Anybody knows copper fouling is it typically inhibits your accuracy at some point in time. And, it, and the first thing it does, or one of the main things, you've got to clean your barrel more often or clean that out of there, or I do anyway. Hmm. And when you don't have any showing up in your bore, you go, well, how long can I shoot this rifle, you know? And uh, it's, it's very amazing so that, that that happens. And, and uh, you know, because typically, you know, pressure and velocity equate to fouling. Yeah, and uh, when this stuff is in, and 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 uh, you know, obviously it's my own formula, but and and there are powders out there that have a uh, copper, what they call a copper fouling eliminator, but the majority of powders don't have that, and and in my opinion, the majority of the powders, uh, even if it's induced in there, there it's not induced uh, to the degree that we're doing it because what because when when you the you know you don't have any fouling there at all it's like that's it's just amazing to see that so anyway what that's worth awesome awesome i look forward to reading up a little bit more on it uh in the future after shot so uh again david thank you so much for your time appreciate it's it's sort of a busy time of year for everyone in the states and the in the gun industry um i I guess just before we go i'll have links to your uh website and to your various bits and, and pieces is there, sort of just before we head off, is there anything else you'd sort of like to mention or talk about, maybe something you don't normally get asked about? You know, if you're really interested, the 6XC, we have a 6XC33XC page, and then we have a Tub Adaptive Target Rifle page. Uh, if you, you know, end up on Facebook, you can you, you can join that, and, and if you're interested in looking at that stuff and seeing what's coming around and so on and get some other pe- other people's experiences, you know, using those products. So that's kind of a good good way to say it. And, uh, you know, the nose ring tool will be out. It'll probably be a consumer tool here in about two or three months. And uh, it's a phenomenal tool, not only in the fact that it's, uh, you know, it uniforms the drag of the bullet, but when it's properly administered, if you're a groundhog shooter or a, Prairie dog shooter or anything, it it really does it does a better job than a plastic tip bullet on making the making a bullet uh, frangible. So mm. something else to come, you know. Which we'll have some on that too. Eventually. So anyway. well on Thanks. that. On that matter, certainly I encourage everybody to check out the interview you did with uh, Frank on the, that was I think on the, the Sniper's Hide on the podcast where you go into that that um, nose ring a lot more and it is just another case of the um, yeah, mind being blown. And Sorry, with the, the product you're talking about but also your explanation of what's happening to the BC out at distance and another thing that we can start quantifying in regards to SD and ES. 
Well, uniformity is what you want. You know, as, as we talked about, you know, we all want this 3,000 foot per second rifle that gives us a zero SD. Mm. And, that's, and that's fantastic. But the hidden SD is what, with all those bullets in that box, you know, are, uh, they're like brothers and sisters. They're not all identical twins. And when you nose ring them, they become very close to either an identical twin or a clone, okay, uh, as far as their drag function. Uh, and uh, so that's something that's, that's it's an eye-opening because everybody goes, oh, well, we got a zero SD. Well, but if your bullets, you know, varies, you know, 30 or 40 SD points or 30 or 40 G1 points, which, you know, then, then you're going to have, you know, the bullets inducing the vertical component into your group, not your powder charges at that point. So anyway, you're trying to eliminate that. Awesome. Every time you say something, I end up with another 20 questions in the back of my head, but uh, we'll have to uh, save that for another time. Um, again, David, thank you so much. Have a good shot show. Um, don't, don't burn yourself out. You've got uh, plenty of water and plenty of snacks, I hope. Yeah, uh, yeah, we hope so. <laughs> you, you have a good day, Kerry. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Trigonometry Podcast. Please make sure you visit our site at precisionshooter.info where you'll find show notes, additional links, and a pile of extra information, including competitions and updates on events near you. While you're there, pop over to our Facebook and Instagram pages, where you'll see regular updates on the goings-on in the precision shooting community in New Zealand. The way that this show grows is through people like you, so please, share on Facebook, and if you know someone who's into shooting and may be interested in checking this out, Flick them over a link. And if you're listening to this through a podcast aggregator or some form of app, make sure you leave us a review. It really makes a difference. Thanks again to The Gear Locker and all our additional supporters. And most importantly, thank you, the listener. Without you guys, none of this could happen. Talk soon, but for now, go have a shoot.